So uh, we're, we're obviously coming to the end, uh, the penultimate um, story of the book of Esther. And, um, and uh, I was once driving over uh, this bridge in Richmond, Virginia. It's called the, uh, the Midlothian Bridge. And um, I was listening to a top 40 radio station, which I never do. It was very uncharacteristic of me. I would usually have a tape in, um, tape back in the uh, 90s. And uh, I was heading to propose to Margie, who's now my wife. She accepted. And I was really nervous, uh, as you can imagine. And I was so nervous that I actually uh, jammed a Q-tip in my ear. And it, ble- it was bleeding. So that's how, that's how much anxiety was in my finger. And uh, as I was crossing the bridge, this um, song came on the radio. Again, a top 40 station. This song never comes on the radio. I've never heard this song on the radio before or after. And it's a song that I always associated with Margie. It's called There She Goes by The Laws and then Sixpence on the Richard did a cover of it later. Probably none of you have ever heard of that song, but uh, it's called There She Goes. And that song came on the radio and I thought this, this cannot be a coincidence. There's no way that's a coincidence. Um, I was about to meet a friend earlier this week and I hadn't seen him for about a year. He was struggling. Um, I didn't know how he was doing with his faith. Uh, it seemed like he was kind of moving away. And uh, I had been praying for him. And then suddenly this text comes out of the blue. And it says, uh, let's meet for lunch uh, next week. So we meet. And on the way to meet him, I pass, uh, I pass Austin in the car. And for some reason, I think to text him. And I say, uh, please pray for my meeting with so-and-so. We're, we're just about to have lunch. And then Austin texts me back, whoa, I was just thinking of him yesterday. So again, one of those things where uh, it doesn't seem like a coincidence. And then uh, the other day, I was walking, uh, I think just a few days ago, with, uh, with April Thomas in Ardmore. She's a, um, she's a missionary to, uh, to East Asia. And um, we were near the, the Mangan's house uh, over there near the Miller Park Rec Center. And we looked over and Allie was talking to her neighbor uh, who was in, in great need of someone who would speak Mandarin. And Abel Thomas is probably the only person in all of Ardmore at that moment who could speak Mandarin. And so she comes off and helps the neighbor um, with her Mandarin. In my favorite movie, Magnolia, the, the narrator opens by telling three quick stories about uh, so-called coincidences. And at the end of those three stories, he says this. It is the humble opinion of this narrator that these things are not just things that happened. This cannot be one of those things. This, please, cannot be that. This was not just a matter of chance. No, these strange things happen all the time. And I'm sure you're thinking right now of one of these things um, that have happened in your life. And I think the book of Esther uh, is a book where these things happen. They happen all the time. And they happen uh, primarily, actually, in this very story we're looking at. Esther is a, a book of salvation. It's a book about salvation. And you really see the turning point in the story we heard uh, tonight that Karen read. And not only is it a book of salvation, it's a salvation through this string of remarkable coincidences throughout. And the whole thing is orchestrated by God, who's never mentioned by name. The whole book of Esther has not a single mention of the name of God, and yet we see his fingerprints all over the book. And so I want to look at uh, these two things uh, on the first uh, point, uh, these coincidences, or perhaps you would better call them uh, the opposite of coincidences. And then the second point, um, salvation, 
uh, through these uh, strange things uh, that happen all the time. So, uh, first of all, uh, where do we see the coincidence uh, in the passage? Well, just to go back, in case you haven't been here for Esther, um, God's people are facing total destruction in the book of Esther. Uh, it's, a, it's a book about uh, the potential annihilation of the Jewish race. And it's because of this man named Haman, who we see at the end of the story is finally destroyed. But uh, at the beginning of the story, he's one of those powerful men in the world. And he hates the Jews. And the reason he hates the Jews is because a Jewish man named Mordecai would not bow down to him. And simply because of that one little slight, Haman decides, not only am I going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to kill the entire Jewish race. And meanwhile, as that's going on, in this uh, spectacular uh, series of improbabilities, Esther, this little Jewish, um, perhaps peasant girl, is exalted to the status of the Queen of Persia. And so um, she has now grown in power to the point that Mordecai realizes maybe this is our way out. Maybe this will be the salvation of the Jewish people. And so Mordecai goes to, Zerx, uh, goes to Esther and convince Esther to talk to her husband, King Xerxes, to get the law changed. To get the law changed that the Jews would be annihilated. And uh, Mordecai says to Esther, perhaps you've been made queen for just such a time as this. And Esther agrees to do what he said. And so Esther, after this massive outpouring of prayer, and prayer is always an important part of these coincidences, but after this massive outpouring of prayer, um, Esther walks into the king's chamber unbidden, just very dangerous, and she comes to the king and says, if it pleases the great king, I have a request to make of you. And as a reader, you're thinking she's about to ask the king to overturn the law, and you're very worried for her. But what she does instead, when the king says, you know, whatever you want, I will grant you half my kingdom. When he says that to her, she says, um, will you come to a banquet that I have prepared for you? And of course he does, and she gets a lot of wine and a lot of good food. She invites Haman, which is very interesting because uh, Haman is the arch enemy, but she wants to have him right there with the king when she springs the question. So she wants both Haman and the king right there, the three of them together, when she finally tells the king that Haman wants to destroy the entire Jewish race, which would include her. But she doesn't do it immediately. At the first banquet, she realizes the timing is not right. For some reason, she gets a sense that it's not the right time. And so at that banquet, Xerxes asks her, I'm dying to know, what is your request? I'll give you anything you want. And then Esther says, we'll come to another banquet. You and Xerxes come back to another banquet tomorrow, and then I'll tell you. And then the night before the second banquet is the fateful, critical night. And that is what we start with in verse 1. And it says, and this is where you see this string of amazing coincidences, which I would say are an answer to prayer. The king had trouble sleeping. Now that in itself is pretty astonishing, uh, not likely to happen. Probably he didn't have trouble sleeping that often. So the king has trouble sleeping. That in itself is kind of amazing. But then even more so is it says how he responded to that is that he ordered an attendant to bring him the book of the history of his reign. So apparently they kept a book of the history of all the things that he did. And maybe that's where Esther got some of her material to write this book. 
So he asked the attendant, will you bring me, uh, maybe it's 5 a.m. or 4 a.m., will you bring me the book of the history of my reign? You know, that kind of speaks to his arrogance that he would want to know that. It's kind of like if I wrote a, uh, an autobiography and I would want that to be brought to me to read that. So the king um, wants the attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign and read it to him. And uh, this is absolutely critical to the overarching plan because in that book of the history of his reign, um, they turn to the very page where this critical event happened where Mordecai actually saved the king's life and he didn't realize it. The king did not realize it or he had forgotten it. But it says in verse 2 that the attendant turned to the very page in this giant book, maybe, you know, maybe a thousand pages, let's say, uh, the very page where Mordecai had exposed a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, what are the chances that they would have turned to that page? Very small. And what if, what if the attendant had been beginning to read at the page after that? Well, then King Xerxes would have felt no favor towards Mordecai at all. But instead, in verse 3, we realize that Xerxes suddenly feels this great debt of gratitude towards the man who saved his life that he had not paid. So he says in verse 3, perhaps uh, kind of flustered and uh, frustrated with himself for not having been uh, generous, he says, What reward or recognition do we ever give Mordecai? The king asked. And his attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. So the king is very ready to, to bless Mordecai. Now at that very moment, another improbability happens. There's a knock at the door. And the king says, who is that in the outer court? And it just so happened, in verse 4, I love that, it just so happened, that Haman had arrived to ask the king to impale Mordecai on a 75-foot pole. Now, this could have been very early in the morning. So why is it that at that very moment that Haman is there to ask the king to kill Mordecai? Maybe Haman couldn't sleep because he was so excited to see Mordecai killed. And the reader knows right now that Haman is in big trouble. This is not going to go well with Haman because the king wants to bless Mordecai and Haman is there to tell the king to kill Mordecai. So, uh, just before Haman asks the king to execute Mordecai, the king says to Haman, Haman, what should I do? This is verse 6. What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thought to himself in his typical narcissistic arrogance, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? Obviously, he's talking about me, and I've got to think of what I really... All these years, I've never really been given anything that I deserve, and finally, he's going to recognize how great I am and so Haman thinks up all the things that he's been deserving. And it's interesting because what he's saying here is almost like he should have been the king. He, he wants to be treated like the king. So he says in verse 8, Bring out the king's royal robes and the king's horse and the royal emblem and lead me, lead this man through the city square and have all the officials shout, Praise him! Praise Haman! As they go. So that's what he thinks he's about to get. And then, and this is the amazing kind of point here where the whole thing turns. Verse 10, Xerxes cries, Excellent! Do just what you said for Mordecai the Jew. And it's interesting that he puts the Jew in there, almost like uh, he has forgotten the decree that he passed to have all the Jews killed. Or maybe he knows that and he's just trying to, to uh, irritate uh, Haman. 
But not only does he say the Jew, but he says, who sits at the gate of the palace. And that sitting was the very thing uh, that, that Haman hated. The fact that he sat and did not bow. And so, uh, my point is, in this series of uh, remarkable coincidences, this silent God who's never mentioned in the whole book of Esther brings about this amazing reversal where Mordecai is exalted and Haman is humbled. And as I talk about this uh, and I keep using the word coincidence, it, it makes me realize that, uh, that that's not quite the right word, is it? That um, the word coincidence implies luck. It implies um, that it was a fluke. Uh, that, um, that Xerxes, uh, not sleeping, that deciding to read, that the very page he read, that hearing about Mordecai and Haman walking in, that all these things were just uh, random. It was just a random chance that all those things would happen in that pattern. And um, when I was an atheist for, for 20 years, that's exactly what I would have thought. First of all, I would have thought somebody made the story up, so it didn't really happen. And then what I would have thought, well, even if it did happen, um, number one, uh, we all have insomnia sometimes, and maybe the king had frequent insomnia. And then number two, um, you know, when I can't sleep, one, uh, one strategy that I go to, I don't know about you, but I'll often read a book, and especially a boring book, and maybe the history of the reign was a very boring book to uh, Xerxes. And then um, also maybe Haman came over in the morning all the time. And uh, maybe, maybe um, Xerxes just particularly loved that particular story in his book of the rain. Um, so that's what I probably would have said uh, as someone who was not a believer uh, in miracles, in prayer. But I think even, even as an atheist, I, I think that I would have not been completely satisfied with that story. I don't think that completely gets to the bottom of it. Because again, um, as... The movie of Magnolia says these, these things happen all the time. These strange things that are, again, the opposite of a coincidence. Not, not a coincidence. And I looked up, I googled um, what is the opposite of a coincidence. And this is what uh, Google came up with. The opposite of a coincidence is a non-coincidence. So that's actually a word that uh, is in the dictionary. And here's the definition. A non-coincidence is a striking occurrence of two or more events at the same time, apparently by mere chance. A striking occurrence of two or more events at the same time. Think about those stories I told earlier. You know, there she goes, my friend for lunch, April Thomas. Um, a striking occurrence of two or more events at the same time, apparently by, apparently by mere chance. And then here's the example that this, uh, and you can go ahead and, and Google it if you don't believe me, but this is the example it gives um, for the definition of non-coincidence. And this is very strange. Example, our meeting in Venice was pure coincidence. That's the example it gives. Our meeting in Venice was pure coincidence. Now, to me, that, that struck me as very, very odd because, and you've got to believe me on this, um, Right before I Googled that, I was thinking to myself, well, what was the biggest uh, non-coincidence I ever experienced before I became a Christian? And without a doubt, it was meeting Margie, my wife, by chance. She was not my wife at this time. And we met by chance in Venice. And uh, it really shouldn't have happened. It was that close to not happening. 
Um, and so if, if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be married, and Cooper and Roosevelt would not exist, and uh, who knows what other string of things would not have happened. But um, the great psychologist Carl Jung, who was once an atheist disciple of Freud, his master, and then rejected Freud completely and all of that secular materialism that Freud believed in, he did so partly because he noticed these coincidences all the time. And uh, the only way he could explain them was through this word that he invented. And the word is, um, is synchronicity. And you may know that word uh, because of a, a great, great album. By the greatest album, in my opinion, by The Police. Uh, one of the greatest bands from the 80s. And um, the, the, the Webster's Dictionary defines synchronicity as the simultaneous occurrence of events that appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. Very similar to the way it defines non-coincidence. But uh, Sting, who wrote the song Synchronicity, this is the way he defines synchronicity. A connecting principle linked to the invisible that is almost imperceptible and is something inexpressible that is to science insusceptible but causally connectable. That's, if you've heard the song Synchronicity, those, those are the lyrics. A connecting principle linking to the invisible, almost imperceptible, something inexpressible, science insusceptible but causally connectable. Now, as a Christian, I would say uh, against Sting and against Carl Jung that it is not a principle, but that is actually personal. I mean, it is a kind of a principle, but it is, it is really a God who is responding to people praying and yearning. Even if they're not praying, just yearning and hoping for something I mean, I was not praying to meet Margie in Venice, but I was hoping for it. And then this, uh, there is this connection where um, God synchronizes events in this thing called synchronicity. I was um, driving home from uh, Oak Ridge after meeting Steve Kearns for lunch at 2.15 p.m. on May 17th. I give you the details just so that you will believe this really happened. Um, and I was praying for Antonius, our own Antonius Gunawan, to get into Wake Medical School and um, I met with Austin an hour or so later, and, uh, and Austin and I were praying. And Austin prays, thank you so much, Lord, that Antonius just got into wake. And I couldn't believe that, that I had just been praying that on the way over there. And then Austin, and so, you know, you can say, well, that's just a coincidence. Uh, those things weren't really linked. But uh, at the Thursday prayer meeting a week ago, uh, Mary Grace Budd, who uh, has since moved on to Atlanta, her prayer request read, about to move to Atlanta, I have no roommate and I need one immediately. And then that evening she told me that she got an unexpected call after we prayed for her from an old friend in Atlanta and it said, hey, I just heard that you might be looking for a roommate. Now, again, you can be suspicious of all those things and that's fine because you're not inside of my head. And so I understand that uh, to you, I can't tell you these things and convince you they really happened. But... Um, but if you could get inside of my brain and my prayers and my wrestling and uh, my perception of events, you would see how amazing these stories that I'm telling are. And you have had them happen to you too, even if you're not a believer. I mean, Carl Jung was not a believer in Jesus, but he saw these things happening all the time. These things happen all the time. That's the first point, coincidence. Uh, the second point, the shorter point, is that uh, salvation comes through coincidences. And right now, you could be thinking to yourself, um, what about all the coincidences that are tragic coincidences? 
That's where my, my mind went when I was thinking about this story and my first point. And I was kind of arguing with myself and thinking, well, yeah, these things do happen. But then there's also things like uh, someone's foot slips on a ladder and he falls and he can never work again. And, you know, maybe there was just one little drop of rain right there where his foot was put down on the ladder and uh, he can never work again. And he's depressed after that. Or maybe a, a husband uh, dives into a shallow lake or the ocean and they, they hit their head in just the right place and the marriage eventually falls apart because they're paralyzed. Or um, someone recently in the Congo was bitten by a bat and then of course the Ebola virus breaks out. So, you know, if you're going to talk about the good coincidences, you also got to talk about the bad coincidences. And, and in my opinion, the bad ones don't invalidate the good ones, but they actually just show that God's salvation always comes through misery and always comes to these dark events like the three that I just talked about and many, many, many more. The salvation of God comes in the wake of these terrible coincidences where things are synchronized uh, in a way that brings about disaster. So you've got to remember the book of Esther. Uh, you know, Joel Osteen wouldn't preach on the book of Esther because the book of Esther is full of these dark, dark things that are not about prosperity. They're not about health. They're not about wealth. They're not about Friday. Um, they're, they're about uh, Monday morning. They're, they're very difficult things. Uh, they are sex trafficking, um, Holocaust, genocide. These, are, these things have already happened in the book of Esther. So obviously the book of Esther would not be saying that everything is bright and cheery in these coincidences. And in verse 4, in this passage, she acknowledges the dark side of coincidence she says to the king, My people and I have been sold to those who would kill and slaughter and annihilate us. So this, this is getting into actually the, what the heart of the biblical story of salvation is. And you may have been sold a bill of goods, and you might think that uh, Christian salvation just means things get better and better and better, and your life gets better and better and better. But actually in the Bible, salvation always comes through tragedy, uh, through suffering. I know I've, I've hammered this point in the book of Esther, but you have to. It's what the book is about. Uh, salvation comes after the fall, after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. It comes after the flood. It comes after slavery for 400 years. It comes after the fall of Jerusalem. It comes after the exile. And primarily it comes after the crucifixion. So uh, salvation is always a very countercultural story. It is... Um, if you, if you think about the shape, if you, if you uh, just characterize salvation as a kind of a shape, it is not an upward arrow. You know, it's not a market graph that goes up. Um, that would be more like the prosperity gospel, where you increase in success and happiness, and your life just gets more and more holy and more and more virtuous and better and better and better. And that is not what the gospel promises anyone. Nor is the gospel a downward arrow where everything gets worse and worse and worse, um, if you believe only in science and what it tells you about the physical world, then all you can really believe in is entropy and eventually everything, the big crunch. It just all comes together and is annihilated. And really, um, if that's all you have is a secular worldview, really that's about all you can hope for is that downward arrow. But it's also not, um, it's not a circle. You know, a lot of people think that uh, their spirituality is kind of like a circle where it's kind of like the New Age spirituality Things just go around and around, and nothing really changes, and you're reincarnated in different forms. The wheel of life, it's not an upward arrow, it's not a downward arrow, and it's not a circle. It's actually 
the shape of the gospel has always been a, it's a U. Um, it's things are terrible. This is true of the movie Magnolia, which is why it's my favorite movie. And then, then they hit the bottom and they, they suddenly sharply turn upwards. Or uh, a great art, like I mentioned Rembrandt a few weeks ago. That's what makes his art so great, is that contrast of light and dark. Uh, great symphonies. Uh, Owen took me to Mahler's second symphony, and uh, it's the contrast, it's the darkness of the tomb and the crucifixion that makes that last movement so absolutely glorious. Or The Lord of the Rings, uh, which is a great, great story of a, uh, a shape of a U. It's a U shape. In fact, uh, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, he coined this term called a U-catastrophe because he used the word catastrophe and he put the word U in front, E-U for good. And he says, this is a quote from his uh, essay on fairy stories, 1947, a U-catastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears because it is so like sorrow. And it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one and reconciled. And uh, Tolkien insists that fairy stories are not escapist fiction. They're not trying to escape into a different world. He says, uh, they do not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. In fact, uh, these stories are necessary to the joy of deliverance. The sorrow and failure is part of the joy and deliverance. What these stories deny in the face of much evidence is the universal and final defeat of all things. Because at the end, there's always that upward turn. So think about your own life, um, the coincidence in your life. Think about the last time where you had uh, one of these things happen, where it seemed like all was lost, um, and then all of a sudden, some, something came to the rescue. And maybe it was a series of coincidences. But uh, that's what happened to Mordecai here. And Tolkien said that when that happens, there's a catch of the breath and a lifting of the heart. And uh, when I read Esther, especially this passage, and if you've read the whole book and you get to this passage, you really feel it. Um, you feel that catch of the breath and that lift of the heart. Um, it's kind of like when I first saw Star Wars and the Death Star exploded. And it was this amazing uh, movement from absolute defeat to total victory. Or when I first read the story of, uh, of the Red Sea as a child, not a believer, but when I read the story about how close they were to death on the edge of the Red Sea, and then God takes them through the Red Sea and then closes uh, the water over the Egyptian army, their arch enemy, uh, it gave me that catch in the breath and that lift of the heart. Uh, I finished reading The Lord of the Rings, and when the the tower crumbles, the dark tower, and Sauron falls. Again, I had that same. I was brought almost to tears. If you've read the whole Harry Potter series, the very end of that um, is is like this incredible movement from total destruction and absolute defeat to all of a sudden this great uplift. And I think really uh, any great story follows that pattern because it follows the biblical narrative. It's so satisfying when um, when Haman is impaled on his own pole that he set up for Mordecai. Now don't try to be more merciful and gracious than God here. This is a good thing. This man is evil incarnate. He is ready to wipe out the whole Jewish race for a single slight. And it says in verse 10, they impaled him on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. That's a beautiful thing. 
In Psalm 57, 6, the psalmist writes, They dug a pit for me, and they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. You may have heard the phrase, hoist on his own petard. It comes from Shakespeare. But that's what happens to Haman here. He is hoist on his own petard. The very thing he meant to destroy Mordecai with, Haman is now destroyed by. And so not only is evil destroyed in this moment, this great moment in the Eucatastrophe, not only is evil destroyed, but at the same time, goodness is absolutely vindicated because Mordecai is exalted. In verse 11, Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed them on the king's own horse, and led him to the city square shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And so there's this sudden reversal in the story. And again, if you've been following the story, I hope you had that feeling of uplift where uh, the, the rapidly changing slope, you know, if you know um, calculus, where the, the slope, the tangent line is rapidly changing at the bottom of that curve and going from negative to positive, that's where uh, from certain holocaust to sudden exaltation, that's where our hearts are moved. And that's what I believe that the story of the universe, the entire universe is, is a great you catastrophe where um, your, your, your favorite moment, any movie, song, uh, literature, anything, any drama that you love, a story from your past, a story from your uncle or aunt or a grandfather or grandmother, they usually have these turns where it looks like all is lost, but then suddenly everything is right with the world. And that's, that's what this uh, meal we're about to partake in is all about. It's the, uh, the sudden reversal of everything. After this series of unfortunate events, which I love that, that set of books, by the way, the, the, the series of unfortunate events where it looks like it is totally random how Jesus gets to the cross. It shouldn't have happened. There are all these little coincidences all along the way where he ends up being crucified. It does not seem like that that should have happened. It seemed like there were so many places that didn't have to happen. But then God incarnate is destroyed. That's about as bad as it gets. When God becomes a human and he is annihilated by the very people he comes to love. His own people. But at that very moment when he is crucified, uh, you could say that the devil is hoist on his own petard. Because that very instrument of death for Jesus, the cross, is the thing that eventually wipes out evil, which people have around their necks. And people talk about all the time, the cross, the wonderful cross. We sing about the cross, where evil is thwarted by its own devices, and then we are exalted like Haman into resurrection, into uh, total joy uh, after our death. Let me just, uh, before we come to this table, read... Three quotes from Tolkien. He says, uh, The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of human history, and the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of Christ. He says, uh, In a eucatastrophe, we have a sudden glimpse of truth, a far off gleam of the gospel, a sudden relief, as if an out of joint limb is snapped back into place. And then finally, he says, That in the gospel, we get a fleeting glimpse of the joy.